0: Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Advent and Christmas season, we are in a series called The Mothers of God, Scandalous Mercy in the Genealogy of Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel and the whole New Testament with the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham. But he includes four women, four mothers. And these four women highlight for us who it is that we celebrate in this season, a God of deep and wide mercy. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless and Merry Christmas.
1: Lord. We're very grateful that your word doesn't shirk back from any of the mess of life. Thankful for your mercy and your grace that we have in Jesus. We thank you that this mercy and grace is uh, written so clearly into Holy Scripture, right in the very beginning of the New Testament, telling us so loudly what's about to happen. Lord, I pray that that we would uh, be an Advent people who are desiring your kingdom, desiring your coming, desiring, Lord, for you to be among us as Emmanuel, God with us, full of mercy and truth. Teach us again these things as we turn to this genealogy this morning. Amen. All right. uh, Jess mentioned that this is uh, the weird Sunday where you have both the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve together. And so this morning we are celebrating the fourth Sunday of Advent. And I, I'd hope you'd come this evening at six o'clock and we will uh, be darker and there'll be more candles. There'll be more, a little more scripture and singing, a shorter sermon for those of you who like ser- shorter sermons uh, this evening. And we have sort of an abnormal Christmas Eve passage for us this morning. Not the normal story. But it is one that reminds us that what we long for is the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God who will act, right? Um, So that's what we have before us. Um, We have scandal before us again. Uh, We've looked at the scandal of Tamar and Judah, uh, where God brought grace and Repentance out of an incestuous situation. Uh, we've looked at the scandal of how God brings uh, mercy even in the midst of his judgment with Rahab and the Canaanite conquest. And we've seen how God brings his mercy to outsiders through Ruth and the story of the Moabite who comes in uh, to the family of God. Today we're looking once again at a story that kind of makes us blush a little bit. Um, I think some of you are done with the, these blushing stories. But we have one more. Um, and you might have noticed that uh, Bathsheba actually isn't mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus that Melise just read for us. She's just mentioned as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Um, one commentator actually that I read said that uh, it's almost as though Matthew sees this as, as such a... High point in scandal in the story of Israel that he doesn't even really want to mention her name. I think there's a better explanation, but it's certainly a scandalous story. Now, let me begin by telling you a little bit of a story, okay? So, early, in the early uh, 1960s, President Kennedy would often call his friend across the pond, the Prime Minister of England, who was Harold McMillan. And um, they would, of course, talk about some of the major events that were going on in the day. Cuba being high among them. Um, but what I read is that he would always eventually ask McMillan the question this uh, this question how How's it going with Profumo? What's the latest? Uh, Profumo was the uh, Secretary of State for War. But uh, he had gotten tangled up in an affair with a a young 19-year-old, Christine Keeler, who was also romantically involved with the Soviet attaché in London. And we all know that Soviet attachés are Soviet spies. So, you've got an affair going on with Profumo, the secretary for war. And this lasts a few months, and of course, as these things happen, the rumors all get out, and he's caught, and he panics, and he lies, and he tries to cover it up. What's this guy doing with somebody who's attached to the Soviets? Of course, um, at the wise prodding of his wife, he comes clean, and he admits what he's done. And all the newspapers sold really well that day, Right? Scandal, liar, adulterer, Soviets. Uh, it actually had such an effect on the whole party. Um, of course, he, he, he was forced to resign, and uh, the prime minister nearly resigns. But eventually, actually, his government does collapse the next year, and it wasn't for 20 more years that his party, the Conservative Party in England, was reelected to the prime minister role uh, with Margaret Thatcher. Okay. Here's something, so I tell you this story, it's like crazy, this 19-year-old and this Soviet attache, Secretary of State, doesn't he know this kind of stuff? You know? Such a scandal. And um, churchy folk, you know, good, proper churchy folk that we are, we're gonna go like, who would do that? Who would do that? Um, and then your mind immediately goes, well, to politicians like George Santos, news anchors like Matt Lauer, comedians like Louis C.K., and unfortunately, I didn't even want to write the list of pastors who I could list this year alone, but if you want to, you go to julierorris.com, and you can list, I mean, they're just unending long lists of scandal. And maybe, if you're wise, you start to ask yourself questions like this, what would I do? With that much power. What would I do if I had those looks? What would I do if I had that bank account? Whatever. What would you do? So, okay, with that question in mind, here's what we're going to do with tackling this story of the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we're going to look at the three main characters. The three main characters in this story are David, are Bathsheba, and Uriah. Okay, so David first Let me read to you a part of Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to turn to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in, in it all his days that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so these are the laws that concern the king of Israel found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He's not supposed to trust in power like the other kings around him, that's the whole thing about not having horses. It's not like the laws against horses per se. Horses were a symbol of power and worldly power. Um, he's not to acquire many wives, which is to say he's not to abuse his power sexually speaking. And he's not to pursue uh, excessive wealth, but he's to pursue God and his commandments. Okay, that's what God says in Deuteronomy. This is, what, this is the king that you can have. Here's how 2 Samuel 11 begins. We heard this. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Shurabba. But David remained at Jerusalem. When the kings go out to battle, David remains. He sends out his people to do it for him. David remains. It sounds a little bit like David's starting to lift himself up over his brothers. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So David's supposed to be leading them as king, but we already heard he's not doing that. He's hanging out at home. He's putting himself over his... Brothers, he's sitting on the couch, and he's going out for a stroll. And um, as Benjamin Franklin said, idle hands are the devil's playthings. Which is actually, it's pretty true. So David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He sees Bathsheba, and he objectifies her. Um, How do I know that he does that? How do I know that he uses his power for his own sexual desires. His objectification of a woman. How do I don't know that? Well, let's continue. okay? And, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself for her, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Okay, first, David sees, he inquires, and it says he took, right? he takes. Um, but the second reason why David is objectifying this woman is actually the, the response to the inquiry. Remember, he says, who is this? And the response is, she's Iliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. Uh, and that should have been enough for David. she have been like, oh, Iliam's daughter, uh, Uriah's wife. Okay, um, because David had 39 men that were around him. They were actually known as his mighty men. So when David would go out on some exploit, he would go, or they would go with him. Um, and uh, they would go on these you know, expeditions together and likely they spent lots of time together, these 39 uh, mighty men. In fact, you can re- read each one of their names and Eliam and Uriah are listed In 2 Samuel chapter 33. Here's what I'm saying. David knew those guys. He would have heard about Bathsheba's birth or her growing up. Or like this would have been something he goes, oh, 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 I got that. But he still says, Ah, I'm, I'm gonna take her. I know who she is. I don't really care. She's an object for me. But now she's pregnant. So what's he do? Well, what David does is he goes into crazy cover-up mode. That's actually the bulk of the story that you heard. But I want you to hear it again, just to hear the extent to which David covers up. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Just talking, 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 you know. Uh, And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. (laughs) David's like, here, take this, just relax. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, David. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David said to Uriah, remain here also today and tomorrow I'll send you back. He's like, I'll get one more chance here. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So, David, sitting at home when all the kings are supposed to be out, going to war, leading their people. He sees this pretty lady. He objectifies her. By the way, he never mentions her name throughout the story. It's it's your wife when he's talking to um, Uriah. So he depersonalizes her in that. He gets her pregnant. Then uh, he has her husband come back from war. He encourages him to go down to his house. He doesn't. And David says, well, I'll just kill you. I feel like we all just need to collectively breathe and just acknowledge how wacko and wild some of the stories in the Bible are. And we've just been sitting in just like the craziest stories. And this one, again, is mentioned for us to prepare us for Jesus. All right, Bathsheba. Let's consider the next character here. The first thing I should say is that we actually don't know that much about Bathsheba in this story. Um, the focus of the story actually does seem to be much more on David and Uriah. But we do know a couple of things. One thing we know is that she was very beautiful. Uh, the text actually says, very good appearance. Meaning she was good to look at. Um People think the bathing is a little bit funny. In fact, really, this is not something that like commentators are remotely consistent on. I mean, the fact is that she was, then the text tells us that she was bathing because of her purification, um, which could have been a very devout and holy act, but she was doing so in view of the King's walkway, you know, out in the open. And that wouldn't have been a normal thing. Um, the fact is is that she, it, it, a fine reading could be, uh, you, you could take it just like she was only objectified and, and it was, David is entirely at fault and significantly that's, that's probably the better way to read it, but the fact is that you could read this and legitimately read this as, I mean, she knows she's good to look at and she's flaunting her stuff. We don't really know. We don't know if she came to David willingly when, He inquired of her, and it says he took her. Um, We don't know. We don't know if she felt like she had to. I mean, she probably would have had to in the ancient world. If a king is calling you to himself, then you probably had to come. But we also don't know if she's like, hey, man, a king. A good opportunity to be a gold digger. Um, We know that David is breaking all kinds of laws. Basically everything that the Lord said a king should do, he breaks. Uh, We know that he's not leading like he's supposed to. He's abusing his authority. He's um, obviously committing adultery and murder. And we just don't know that much about Bathsheba. So, we'll just say we're not totally sure all that's going on here. But let's quickly then consider Uriah, okay? The first thing we learn about Uriah is that he's a Hittite. Which is just to say he's, he's not part of the normal people of God, right? He's like the outsider. He's the strange one in this story. He actually was from, the Hittites were sort of northern Canaan, okay? North of Can- Canaan. Um, but somehow in the course of things, he has come to worship the true God and to become part of Israel. Again, part of what Matthew is doing is he's bringing in all of these outsiders, right? I mean, Tamar was the Adulamite. Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabite, and Uriah is mentioned here, and he's a Hittite. All the outsiders are coming in, okay? Um, but the next thing that we learn about Uriah is that he is exactly where David is supposed to be. He's doing the exact same thing that David was not doing that he was supposed to be doing. He was in battle with Joab. And the third thing we learn about Uriah is that he's very faithful um, and this is what Uriah says to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booths and my Lord Joab and his servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go out to my house to eat, drink, lie with my wife as you live. And as your servant lives, I will not do it. He's very faithful both to God and to those who are over him, Joab and his uh, fellow soldiers. So here's, here's the deal, right? We have, we have these characters in this scandal. We have David, Bathsheba, Uriah, David, who across the board is not following the Lord. I mean, there's no aspect of this story that you're supposed to read and go, I should be like David. There's no aspect of that. He's obviously here the victimizer. He is the one with, that actually seeks out the harm of others, t- takes from his power and takes something else that isn't his. He objectifies. Bathsheba, here's this beautiful woman. We don't really know too much about her. Um, She's likely the victim, but we're not sure if she could be some level an accomplice. We don't know. Then we have Uriah, who really is put on the exact opposite spectrum of David. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's faithful to God and to others. He's an outsider who's teaching us what faith looks like, like Rahab, the prostitute. He shows faithfulness beyond what we could imagine. Here's the scandal of the story. Who's alive at the end of the story? David? Bathsheba's alive also. But that's not right, right? Why does David get to live and to still be the king. And and Bathsheba gets to live and and Uriah gets put at the front of the battle and is killed. What happens with David and Bathsheba? Well, you know, you probably know the story if you've been around churches for a while, but if you haven't been, um, God tells Nathaniel the prophet to, to call David on his sin and David actually does repent. That's what Psalm 51 that we read about. That's David's repentance psalm. And he's forgiven. Now, there's actual horrible consequences from his sin, just like often there are in our own lives. But David is forgiven. This scandalous story. What kind of mercy is this? Why does God extend such mercy in the world? Scandalous mercy. Bathsheba, well, her, her child she's pregnant with here dies but she has another child Solomon who becomes king and I mean she's restored she becomes the queen and the mother of the king eventually what a scandalous mercy what a sort of not right mercy in a way it just shouldn't happen we have a story again of crazy sexual misconduct. For some reason, Matthew seems to be pointing us to all those. And uh, here again, we have God showing wild mercy, just wild mercy. All right, let me tell you a little bit more about Profumo, and then I'll wrap up quickly, hopefully. So Profumo is caught, right? And he He outs himself. He's caught in adultery and um, and everyone hoped Profuma would just disappear. you know, like, let's not talk about that guy anymore. Just go away, please. A few years later, he he reappears. he says he's been rehabilitated, he's deepened, he's matured, and he wants to serve in parliament and, you know, he says, oh, it'll all depend on the the will of the voters. My candidacy is in their mercy. And people didn't want to think they were unmerciful. Nobody likes that. So he wins in a landslide, works his way up to the party chief, runs for prime minister. That's not true, actually. None of that's true. Let me tell you the real story, okay? I'm trying to keep your attention here. Um, he does the exact opposite, actually. He does the exact opposite. Uh, He knows what he did was wrong. He he really did just kind of go away more. He never asked for power again. Uh, He went to go work with the poor uh, in the run-down settlements of East London. He worked at a place called Toynbee Hall. He worked as a social worker among the poor. He visited prisoners, cared for orphans, visited with the criminal insane, criminally insane. He worked for workers' education rights. And um, he didn't do it for show. He did it for 40 years. It's not like he just kind of went for a little while and was like, uh, looks pretty good, right? Can I have some power back? Um, so in November 2003, actually, after he'd been there for 40 years, um, he finally gave an interview. And he did this interview with one of his old friends. Um, his, fr- his old friend says, Jack, what have you learned from this place? And he said, humility. I learned humility. And you probably know that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, what we first see is this, the story of this humble faithful Hittite, Uriah. And what he does, in some ways he's like Tamar being used to bring Judah to repentance. What this man does is he shows King David, the king himself, the way of humility. And it's through humility that God brings his grace and his mercy. Um, When I first started studying this sermon, I was utterly struck by the fact that all these other women, you know, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, they're mentioned by name, but Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name. I mentioned that earlier. God does show grace to Bathsheba and David back in 2 Samuel. But God records Uriah's name here. He says, you need to remember Uriah. God brings grace to the humble. God shows grace to Uriah. So, of course, y- y'all are getting ready to celebrate Christmas. and I hope you'll come this evening. But today's the last Sunday in Advent. We've talked about that. Advent is oftentimes, I mean, Advent is just literally comes from the uh, Latin word, which means coming, Adventus, right? Um, the coming of God. And so a lot, a lot of times it's focused on our sin. And our need for God to come as Jesus, the the one who would save their people from the, save his people from their sin, and so what we've been seeing in each one of these stories is just this utterly scandalous and radical mercy of God. I mean, God showed mercy to Judah, right? I mean, God shows mercy to Rahab, who's always mentioned again in Hebrews and James as the prostitute, the embodiment of what was wrong with Canaanite Cana. The Canaanites, God shows mercy to the outsider. Again and again, Matthew's highlighting for us the great need for God to come and show us his mercy. And this is the message that we hear this morning again. God's grace is for you. Like, no matter what you did, I mean, to the point that it actually almost rubs us wrong how intense his mercy is. It's so scandalous. His mercy is for you. That the best thing for you in the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah is for God to come. To humble you and to bring you his mercy and his peace. The greatest thing for Profumo was to be humbled, to be brought low. The greatest thing for David actually was to be humbled and shown his sin. Because in doing that, he was actually shown the great mercy of God. This is what all of us actually deeply need. God's grace for us. Jesus coming for us that he would save us from our sins. And I want you to think about this. If you're the one who just objectifies others, which is a horrible sin. God's mercy is for you. It is. And we know, of course, that the the pornography industry is worth more than all of the major sports combined. But there's other ways to objectify men and women. You can use people in your friendships. Just for your benefit. It's objectification. You know, being a ghost friend. God needs to come to you. And his mercy is for you. Um, Maybe you're one of the, maybe you're somebody who just uh, feels the pressure of life around you. And you give in to what everybody is telling, which is show yourself off. Whatever your gift is, show it off so that others can see how great it is. Maybe get you a leg up in life. God's grace is for you. Jesus comes for you. Um, maybe you're the one who's actually experienced just a deep victimization. You have been the victim of others, other people's sin and hate. You've been the one who's been objectified. I'm telling you again, God is coming for you and his grace is for you. You are never so far gone for God to not love you and restore you and write your book, your name in his book, like he did for Uriah. Jesus never comes to objectify, but he always comes to dignify. In some ways, these stories that we've looked at in this story says. It doesn't matter what your story is. God's mercy is for you. It doesn't matter how scandalous, how big your sin looms. God's mercy is for you. This is the coming of God. It's a scandalous mercy that might rub us wrong. But it's the mercy we need. God coming. God restoring God shining his kind light upon us. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that the the crazy stories, the scandal stories of, of your holy scripture would both cause us to delight in it more and more and be in awe that, that you don't shirk back from the the wild and scandalous stories of our world But more than that, Lord, I pray that we would see how wonderful your grace is. How overwhelming it is. How astonishing and shocking it can be. And we can say like Paul, that we're the chief of sinners. Yet your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. God, I pray that we would delight in you this season as the God who comes with great mercy, great grace, and that we would be a humble people. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and our salvation. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Second City Sermon podcasts. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org or on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.